network that we're a part of. And uh, as, as Pastor Maudi said, uh, Acts 29 has been around for about 25 years. We've, uh, I've been a part of them for about 20 of them. And uh, throughout all the craziness of uh, the last two decades, for at least you know, my experience, uh, Acts 29 has been the people or the group or the network that have cared for us the most. And, and what you wouldn't see uh, when COVID hit and everything changed, right, to say the least, uh, I was on, I was invited within days to be in a meeting with pastors all across the country, all across the globe, right? And Acts 29 began to care for us as we were trying to care for, attempting to care for you in the midst of things. And so Acts 29 is a network we're a part of. You hear about it here and there, uh, but dear to my heart for sure. And I just wanted you to know that they have been the key people that care for us, especially me, but us, our staff, our leaders, we go to conferences they do, they pour into us. And uh, so yeah, if you want to know more about that, let me know. All right, I'm good. Let's do it. Acts, uh, I'm sorry, not Acts, 1 Corinthians 6. You guys can turn there. You're going to need a Bible. If you don't have one, there's one on the chairs in front of you. And if you borrow one on the chairs in front of you, I can tell you it's on page 954 and help you get there. During the message, we're going to ask you to take notes. We ask everybody always to take notes. It's a good habit. It is something wonderful to teach your kids as they sit with us in church. And at the end of the message, we do something called a takeaway. What, what is your takeaway from today? And the idea is, what is something that stood out to you that you want to apply to your life today? And so that's good for you. That's good for your five-year-old. That's good for your spouse. It's good for whatever. And so I'd encourage you to take notes while you're here. We will do that at the end of the message. Uh, today's pretty special. We have a baptism today. We've got uh, that coming up at the end of service. We've got some next week as well. So pretty cool season for us. First Corinthians deals with 10 issues that Paul is writing to the church about. So Paul began this church by going to Corinth. He led the first people to faith by sharing the gospel with them, seeing them converted, baptized a handful of them, trained up some elders, and he handed off. He went on to do the next place, the next place. He ends up in Ephesus, where he spends about three years, and during that time, he stays in relationship with the church in Corinth. He is eventually arrested in Ephesus for being a Christian and taken all the way from there to Rome. And Rome is eventually where he will end up giving his life for his faith as a martyr for Christianity. And it's during this time that begins when he's in Ephesus and then while he's in prison for his faith that he is writing letters to the church in Corinth. And we talked about this in the first message that 1 Corinthians is the first letter we have of two in our Bible. It's not the first letter written between the two churches. This is picking up in the middle of some conversations. In fact, it's at minimum the second letter written by him. And then 2 Corinthians, which if you're in a community group, are probably doing uh, a study in, that's actually at minimum the fourth letter. And so in the middle of the two letters, Paul actually visits Corinth too. So Paul has a relationship with this church, and he's writing them about issues in their church that they are dealing with. Now, every local church, right, and that's the definition of church, is a, a gathered group of people who belong to Christ and one another. There's a simple definition, right? You can't just be a part of the church at large because there's no way to live that out with other people. 
right? When it says, bear one another's burdens, it's really hard to do that with somebody on the side of the planet, right? So it's talking about a local gathering of people committed to Jesus and one another. And that's part of the thing that we've been leaning into in 1 Corinthians. And so there's these 10 issues around purity and unity. So here's the main idea we've used the last couple of weeks. I'm going to add to it today. So unity and purity. Every church is called to live in unity and purity for the growth and maturity of the collective body and as a witness for Christ to a non-believing world. That's been true. That will be true for all 10 issues. It will be dealing with issues of unity and issues of purity. Today, we're going to tackle two issues. They're short little issues that Paul addresses in the same chapter. And so I want to give you another uh, a note on the screen, authority questions. We talked a little bit about this last week. Who do we give authority to collectively and individually? Do we see Jesus as an authority over us? And I, I know you're, you're prone to want to say yes. I get it. Bear with me through the message today. Let's define that before we answer it. Do we see the church collectively as an authority? And we talked about that last week, right? Last week, Tough message in 1 Corinthians 5 where they're told to remove someone from belonging to the church. He goes from member to non-member for the sake of his restoration. I would encourage you, I don't care if you're a guest today, just one time I would encourage you to listen to that message. If you belong to Generations, for sure you should hear that message, right? And we spent quite a bit of time on what it looks like and why, why would we give authority to a local, a local assembled gathering? Well, one good reason Jesus calls us to, right? Scripture calls us to, but for the good of all of us. And that's what we talked about last week. I'm so grateful that 1 Corinthians 5 is not the only passage that talks about that particular situation. I'm so grateful that 2 Corinthians 2 shows that man being restored back to that church. Much more hopeful message that way. And so now as we get into 1 Corinthians 6, like we talked about authority last week, I want to just remind you, just challenge yourself on your view of authority. What kind of authority do you think the local church should have? What kind of authority do you think should should Jesus have? Excuse me, should Jesus have in your life? Right? And so as we as we as a as if if we as a church truly understand and protect who belongs to the church, right? Who is a a member of, like covenantally in relationship, not just who attends, right? That next level of who actually is covenantally in relationship with one another. If we we guard and protect that, if if we're clear about what that means and what that looks like, then it becomes much clearer and easier to trust going to that gathered body, right? And and seating or giving authority to them. Now remember, we talk about authority. We're not talking about my authority. As a pastor, we're not talking about the elders' authority who give spiritual leadership to the church or the deacons' authority who kind of give physical management care to the church or the staff who do ministry or lead ministries within the church. We're talking about when we gather as a membership of the church, the authority of that body. Make sense? A little bit? I, I would encourage you to listen to last week's message. So 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So here's what's going on. There are problems between members of the church. So I want to clarify this just in case you're unclear. So there are people here today who are here for the first time ever. Okay, we'll call that guest, right? That's a guest. 
We love that people are here today. We think every guest, just so you know, is a gift from God. Like we try and steward that like as if someone gave us money. Like people are our greatest resource. They're the greatest thing that God trusts us with. So that's guests. Guests is here. We hope you love our church. We hope we care for you while you're here. Maybe this will become your family, right? And then there are those who attend regularly who have not gone through the process yet or are going through it. Right now, there's about 30, 35 people going through the process of becoming members, right? So we go from guest to friends to there's roughly about 50 people who have covenanted together as members, right? We'll call that family. Family, friends, guests. Make sense? When we're talking about this issue, and when we're talking about the issue last week, we're talking about family. We're talking about that level of people who formally belong to one another and how they're acting or not acting. In this case, what's going on are there are members of this church and they're taking each other to court. Now, we don't know exactly what the issue is, but we know that it has to do with something financial, that someone has been defrauded in this, so I'm going to make up a scenario. Right? So someone here loans someone else another member. So a member in the church loans another member money. And then that member never pays them back. It's like that, right? In our world, you could go to civil court. You could bring a small claims case, or depending upon the the size of money, you go further, right? And that's what's going on. This is a civil issue, not a legal issue, right? God gives authority to human government to care for legal issues, right? Think the last six commandments and the 10 commandments, right? Murder, theft, things like that. God gives authority to human government for that purpose, right? In the same way, God gives church the authority over the first four, right? Over our worship and our practice. And then we get to speak into the last six as well. But legal issues are different. God handles those differently. This is a civil issue. Civil issues are like lawsuits, financial issues, even divorce. Those are civil courts, right? Those are different situations. I don't know where divorce fits in a courtroom, but bear with me. You get the idea. It's not legal. Does that make sense? It's not a crime. And so the passage today uses words like grievance, trivial cases, dispute lawsuits, and defraud. So something financial is going on between two people who are living in this covenantal relationship in this local church in Corinth, and they're taking this issue to court, all right? That's the setting for today. Verse 2, that's the setting for the first issue. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, meaning us, the church, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, these references to judging that Paul writes very clearly are not so clear in the rest of Scripture. On the rest of scripture. So, at the end of time, Christ judges the world, and it's thought maybe because we are in Christ or the body of Christ, maybe we participate in that. Not exactly sure. And I'll tell you for sure, no one has a good answer to what it means that we judge angels, right? Those who have rebelled against God, we call those demons, but they were angels who rebelled against God. Those have been judged by God already, and we know the outcome that eventually, like Revelation 19, 20, that they are cast out, but they're judged by God in that case. And so it's unclear where necessarily the saints or the church, we, fit into that, but Paul is using it to make a point. So what is unclear is okay, What is very clear is the purpose of those two statements is to point out that we should be capable of discerning smaller matters within the church. Does that make sense? What we do with the world, what we do with angels, unclear, but the idea he's making is very clear. That we should be able to solve 
local issues. This person has a problem against this person, they're members of the church, we should be able to solve that. That we shouldn't be going to the courtroom to do that. So that's what he's talking about. Verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, here's what he's saying. Why would you go then to a secular court? Meaning a court with no... With not, why would you take it outside of the church? Now, last week, this week, I said that First Corinthians is going to challenge our understanding of the authority of the local church. And I'm going to just continue to be very, very clear. When I say the authority of the local church, that means the gathered membership, the believers who are gathered together, who have covenanted with one another, the assembled people, as it spelled out very clearly last week, have authority. We're not saying me. We're not even saying the elders, right? We're saying that the church does. And he's saying, because remember, this is written to the church to be read aloud on a, on a Sunday with the implication of, like we said, family, friends, guests, that the problems exist within the family that it doesn't necessarily apply, it couldn't possibly apply to the guests because no one would know that, right? And so local issues, and there's an authority when the church gathers. that when they assemble, they're able to do this. So his point is, you should be able to handle some of these issues when you get together. He says, why would you go to outsiders, those who have no standing in the church? It's like this, if you go to a secular marriage counselor, that you are likely to get secular marriage advice. If you're not familiar with the term secular, non-Christian. If you go to someone who's not a Christian, you're going to get non-Christian advice, right? Where if you go to a Christian counselor, you can get Christian, I hope, biblically-based counsel, right? Now, in this case, maybe this person believes in your autonomy and, and that you matter more than everything else, and well, if you're not happy, you should leave, and going to give you secular advice, right? And over here, we believe that marriage is holy, that it's covenantal, that unless there's a, there's a few circumstances where you should leave that, but unless that, in fact, this is the topic of next week's message, right, of what marriage looks like, but outside of that, that you're to stay married, right, that, that marriage is less about happiness and more about holiness, right, and then it is, it, is, it is less about where you are today, and it's more about trusting Christ in the process. Now, I just want to say this out loud. Now, if you're not safe in your marriage, I know I'm not saying you, Right? If you're not safe at home, this doesn't, not what we're saying. There are exceptions to this. But as an overall general rule, that we covenant together till death do we part. Right? And that, that that matters. And so when you get advice about your marriage, when you go for counsel, for decision, for oversight, for care, even in the case of last week, for maybe discipline, but most of the time, basically for discipleship, for learning and growing that the church should be that place, the, the gathered people, people within, right? Verse 5, so he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This brother against brother is clarifying that it's people who belong formally to the church. They're brothers, right? They're family in the church, Brother goes to law against brother. Now he says, I say this to your shame. That's pretty strong language, right? Paul earlier in the letter says, I don't say this to shame you, but to teach you this. And he goes on to teach them. In this case, he says, I say this to your shame. Pretty strong. And then his next line is very sarcastic. Can it be that there's no one wise enough among you wise enough to settle a dispute? 
I read that and I texted Alex this week and I said, see, sarcasm is my spiritual gift. <laughs> Biblical. <laughs> Probably not great reading in that text, but he says, you're not acting like people who have been transformed by Jesus. You're not living that way, right? You're professing to be that, but you're not living like that. So here's a note for you. If you're a note taker, we'll put this up. So the church is to be distinct, right? Different. The gospel creates transformed people. We are new creations in Christ and should not look or act like the world we are a part of before Christ. There should be a difference. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, there should be a change, right? The change is caused by the gospel. The change doesn't earn or merit your salvation. The change is a result of your salvation, right? The result of the gospel work being done on you by God. You don't earn God's love, but you respond to God's love, right? You don't earn forgiveness or justification. You respond to it. And that's what he's saying. Like, you should be different people, but you're living with worldly values, right? You're trusting worldly institutions over godly institutions. Remember, we said earlier, like if we really truly treat who is a member, whose family, who, who we trust to be this, this, this body of believers, if we really set the bar biblically, then we should be able to trust that group of people. Is that fair? Right? It's kind of like you get the people you elect. I know, not a great parallel, right? <laughs> but it, but it, as has been said by our founding fathers, you, you get the people you deserve, right? Like you, you get the people you elect, you got that coming, right? But in, the, in an opposite, and I hope in a way better scenario, as we look at what it means to be a member of a church, belong to a local church, if we strive to do what scripture says, then what we're doing is really striving towards what God has created, and that should be trustworthy. Not perfect, but trustworthy, right? And that the collective whole, like we saw in last week's case, when the man is restored in 2 Corinthians 2, it says that the decision made by the majority is enough, right? Like, with enough of you together, we'll overcome kind of the places where we don't connect things, that it'll balance out and help make sure that, that we are aiming where God would take us, right? If, if truly as believers who are baptized and, and followers of Jesus and living in repentance, and we have the Holy Spirit living in us, then we get together, it's a collection of people who have the Holy Spirit, we should be able to decide civil matters, right? Now just, again, I want you to recognize how foreign this is to you, right? If you have a legal matter with somebody, we go to legal outcome, we go to a, a legal court or a legal a situation, we engage people, attorneys, judges, courts, whatever. And it's foreign to us to think that this is where we would come. Make sense? And so I just want you to see that it's true and then see that it's not true. That should be our message, right? We see it clearly here and they're being admonished for not doing it. And then it seems really foreign in modern day life. That's our purpose in 1 Corinthians right now is just to see the disparity between where we are and where we should be. Between where we are and where scripture would call us to be. And so in that, that calls us to take steps in a direction towards being biblical, right? Coming from our tradition, we like the word reformed, right? 
and we say reformed and reforming, right? We were reformed 500 years ago. We broke away from the Roman Catholic Church because they had drifted and, and gotten away from the gospel. That's more true today than it's ever been. And we became what is now known as reformed, right? But we should always be reforming, and as the phrase goes in Latin, by the word of God, right? Reformed and reforming always by the word of God. That We should always be looking at scripture and asking ourselves, where do we not line up? Now, not just we individually, because there's, there's, there's place for that for you today. But where collectively, the first issue points us to a place where collectively, we're not doing our job. And I would just say this, probably collectively, unwilling to live like this at some level, right? And so how far away are we collectively? And then we'll look at individually in a minute. So verse 7 says, to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong, Paul says? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves are wrong, and you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's Paul's question to them. Why not just lose the money in that deal? Why not? Well, so we have two issues modern day with that, right? So at first, we don't see the gathered local church as authoritative or trusted enough to settle a dispute between us and another. That's our first hang-up, right? Like, I'm not sure that I, maybe you didn't, never even heard this concept before, and so you're like, it's brand new, right? But in our modern culture, this is not where we go, and we don't typically trust this. Now, churches got to own that. With as many pastoral failures and public failures and abuses and things like that, like, the church has got to own it, right? At some level, the black eye is on us, right? You take the shots because you did it. But that doesn't excuse it. That means fix it, right? That means change it. Be a trustworthy body, right? The second is we don't see a unified church as important, right? We don't see our witness to others collectively as valuable. So we're not willing to sacrifice personally for the greater whole, So not only do we not trust the institution, we don't value needing a trusted institution. See, the modern individual Christian today thinks it's just between me and God. That's not what Scripture says at all. But we don't see the need. We We don't see the call towards. We don't see the need for. And so we resist this. So we get to these places, and when we read this passage about why would you take your brother to court? right? And you ladies are not off the hook. It's the plural. Includes all y'all, right? We're just being nice today. So it includes like, why would you sue someone else in the room? Well, and here's our two answers. We don't trust this body to make that decision. And really, we're not worried about the the, the witness of or the reputation of this body, because we don't value church that much. Right? Because we've tried to globally define church as this thing of every believer, past, present, and future. You know, just a part of the church, right? I hear that a lot. Never really, not never, rarely ever how Scripture uses it. Yes, Christ will gather His church, collectively plural, at the end of time. Most everything else is written to a local church. Can't love one another, forgive one another. You can't do those things except for in a local context. It's all written to the local church that way. So the church matters. Who's in the church matters. What accountability we hold the church to matters. 
I used to always use, I used to always use a language with uh, many of you, you know, Pastor Vinny and, and Pastor Mike. And we have a firm calling. We set a high bar, and we give a soft place to land. Right? We set the bar big, and there will be times where we'll miss the bar. We've got a soft, grace-filled place to land. That's not an excuse not to hit the bar, right? Like, the bar is here, aim for the bar. Hit the bar. Let it be there. But when you fall short of that, there's a soft place to land. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this, these next three or four verse, three verses, they form a bridge between the two sections. In your Bible, likely, if you're in the ESV, it keeps these a part of the top section. But this passage, 9, 10, 11, actually would fit with the top section or the bottom section in chapter 6. Two separate issues, and there's a bit of a bridge in this little paragraph. So it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul defines three categories of sin or three categories of, if you were here Wednesday night, it was what is sin, right? Some of the key words were like rejecting or ignoring God right? Rebelling against God, right? Things like that. And so there's three categories to see sin in. One is the sexually immoral. List multiple ways that that can take place. There are another category of defrauding others, greed, swindling, theft, that kind of thing. There's another one, those given to sinful habits, idolaters, drunks, those who constantly criticize, right? And I want you to see that all three categories are put into a label of the unrighteous, right? And for Paul, there's the unrighteous and the righteous, or there are the unrighteous and the saints, or the holy, or the church, or the whatever, right? There are those outside of Christ, those inside of Christ. And he gives categories. And last week, we, we used this language of, and, I, and I, I didn't grab the quote from last week, but if you are living in such a way that your life is defined by a label, fairly defined by a label, like a drunk, right? Someone who is constantly battling, well, not battling, someone who is constantly drunk, right? And if your life is lived in such a way where the label fits, you're probably not following Jesus, right? That's a summary of kind of that quote. And we were talking about the guy last week who was doing some stuff that was way out of line, right? And his life was defined by that label. Therefore, he was told to be removed from membership in the church and, and not told he can't attend. It was said, removed from the membership, treat him like a non-believer, right? The goal is that he would be restored, that he would hear the gospel and repent. And again, there's a very, there's a very thin line. There's a caution that needs to be said here. What we're not saying is that we judge if you die tonight, heaven or hell, right? That, that's not a judgment I get to make. That's a God-sized decision, Right? What we're called to judge, if you read again last week's passage in 1 Corinthians 5, we are called to judge what we see, right? Righteous, unrighteous, right? Following Jesus, not following Like We're called to do that, and we're called to do that not as judges over to look down on, but rather for your health, for our health, right? If you saw me doing something that was death to my marriage or death to my faith or death to my personal life, how loving would it be to ignore that? Right? We see a kid running out towards the street and there's traffic coming. I don't care about the kid's independence or psyche or ego. I'm going to snatch the kid up. We want to prevent death. 
Sin is death. And so what we're saying here is it is most loving to go and have a conversation and, and, and talk that out. And, and then Jesus lays this out for it. Go one-on-one. If that doesn't work, if your brother doesn't listen or sister doesn't listen, take a couple others from the church. Go speak to them. If that doesn't work, bring it to the church. There's a time and a place where the church can be involved in that, right? And again, as that plays out, all those steps are aimed at repentance and restoration and, and people turning from what's bad for them and turning towards Jesus, right? There's no benefit if you're, uh, if, uh, we'll stay with drunk. If you're a drunk, there's no benefit to me if you stop drinking. There's great benefit to you, right? I don't get any brownie points because you got sober, right? I don't get a raise. Nobody sends me a cake. So cookies, I prefer cookies for the record. Cheesecake. I like cheesecake. Too much. So, right? This has to be about love. This has to be about the confrontations in love. Then we're going to say like, hey, this is killing you, right? This is bad for you. This is destroyed. This is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. But I want to walk with you. I want to see you restored to that. Right? And, and it's in that context where now it gives just categories again. So first we saw this passage about disunity and really desiring secular outcomes, the finances, the, the benefit over a spiritual outcome, which would be unity and or the witness of the church, right? And trusting the church, right? That the, if, again, in that circumstance, you should be able to understand that the church would likely get at right. Like, okay, you loan the money. You didn't pay the money back. Okay, well, that's easy. How do we work together on this, right? Maybe the person has had a catastrophe and there's certain circumstances and we figure out, okay, how do we make this work? But we don't do that. So now it categorizes people, right? And it adds these kind of two overarching categories. You're unrighteous or not in Christ or in Christ, right? And it's not a heaven or hell thing. And it's only, only God can do that. We're saying if you're living like this, we have no reason to believe you're in Christ, right? There's no evidence that you're living in Christ. Maybe you, and we need to just correct this. Maybe we need to point you to Jesus. Maybe we need to lead you to Jesus for the first time. I don't know, right? But it's most loving to have that conversation. So that's what Paul is talking about here, right? He says, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. He does two things really here. He levels the playing field. We're no longer looking at them for their sin. We're recognizing we all have sin. Such were some of you, right? My background, worse than most of your backgrounds. Okay, in a lot of ways, right? So I can't come off as better than, right? And I remind myself, such was I. Therefore, I understand we're all broken, So it levels the playing field. We're not looking down on specific sin types. Notice the list has some very outside the norm things and it has some very normal things, right? A lot of people run around criticizing other people. That's considered in the camp of the unrighteous, right? As well as some of the other things, okay? So it levels the playing field. It reminds us we're sinful too. Maybe the only difference is that we're in Christ, or maybe the only difference is that Jesus convicted us of something that we're, we're changing or turning to Jesus in, and maybe that person just needs that, or, or maybe they need Jesus to begin with. That's it. Level playing field. And the second thing is it reminds us of what we used to be, 
The inference is we're not now. Right? And so what it says is you lived that way, but in Christ, and listen to the words, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made like Christ, is what that means. You were justified, forgiven, right? And given Christ's holiness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. He's making the case like he has in the first two messages. He says, you're saints, so live holy. That was week one, right? And the next one, you were sanctified, so live as the sanctified, right? Here, he's saying, so were some of you. Like, your lifestyles used to be defined by this too. But it should be a used to be. If it's not a used to be, we go back to the first question, right? He's, he's just pointing this out. He wants us all to see ourselves as equally in need of Jesus. He also wants to see ourselves as equally in need of repentance. That unifies us and purifies us. Right? That as a church, we don't look down on sinful people. We recognize we're sinful people. We don't look on, down on a certain lifestyle. Oh, they're a drunk. We forget, oh yeah, I used to have an addiction too. Right? What we do is we understand where they're at and their need for Jesus. And we need to be people that are changed. 2 Corinthians 5, right? The next letter that we, we, that we talked about. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So I want you to hear that. Jesus reconciled us to God. And then as a church, what is our job? To be like many Jesus, right? And help reconcile, see people reconciled to God. We get to go and be Christ in our community, right? We're not qualified to be Jesus, but we get to go represent Jesus, right? We go out to the community, love the community, live in a specific way in front of the community so that the community, when they look at us, they should see glimpses of Jesus. And when they do that, and when they do that collectively, such were some of you, remember all the yous in this, I, there's rare exception, all of them are plurals. So that when we are a corporate representation of Christ in our community. So we as a church represent Jesus, just like you represent Jesus in your family or on your block, in your school, at your workplace. Verse 12, Paul begins his second issue. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now you're going to notice there's some quotations around the first part and none around the second part. Here's what's going on. The part in quotations are quotes from the Corinthians. These are things the Corinthians have said. Paul is responding to them. Here's what the Corinthians say. Paul says, but I say this, right? Here's what the Corinthians say. It's going to go back and forth, and we'll see another one in a minute. So verse 12, we'll start again. All things are lawful for me. That's what they say. But not all things are helpful. That's what Paul says. All things are lawful for me. He says it twice. Paul then says, but I will not be dominated by anything. They say, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And Paul says, God will destroy both one and the other. So there's this fake conversation. There's this discourse between the two, right? This is called discursive writing. He's having the conversation, but it's really only him talking. He's quoting them. We're going to see another one come up in just a minute. And here's what they're saying. All things are lawful for me, right? They're saying, listen, because we're in Christ, we can do whatever we want to do. Yeah, not good, right? And, and our modern day version of that is, well, I'm, I'm forgiven, right? We fall back on that easy forgiveness Thing. 
And so they have a misunderstanding with the gospel completely. But what they're doing, and the other quote, food is meant for the body and the body for food, isn't about food. It's about their appetites physically. You with me? It's a family service. Trying to stay there, right? So that next, that will clarify why he says the next line. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You with me? They're saying, listen, man, I'm made this way. As like saying, I'm a guy. And Jesus is like, so was I. Body is what Paul calls the local church. There's a play on words here that he's adding to when we get to the later chapters, 11, 12, right? Body is what he's talking about for the local church, right? And then members of, he's talking about those who belong. So you'll see that in, in earlier chapters as he's leading up to those messages that we'll get to eventually. So the people in Corinth are trying to justify their sexual sin and get away with it. And they're using cultural things from their culture. So I want to give you some, so we don't have the same culture. This is 2,000 years ago in Corinth. It's very Greco-Roman culture. It's very pagan. People worshiped overtly, worshiped different gods and idols and things. Okay, so very different. I want to give you the modern day equivalent for the same sin, but we're in love, right? Oh, but we're going to get married. We've never heard that, huh? You've never said that, huh? Okay, same idea right? God created sex. That, that two people, one man, one woman, inside the boundaries of marriage, consensually, for a lifetime, could enjoy. And because it's enjoyable, we tend to do it wrongly. And that wrongly is called sin, and we're rebelling against God. And they're excusing it like we see people excusing it today. And there's no excusing it. That's what he's saying, right? Well, you know, I'm just kind of made this way. Oh, we just love you. We love each other, though. Oh, but we're going to get married, but you're not. Right? And so they're trying to use these excuses. Now, in our modern day setting, we eventually get to the idea that we're forgiven. We eventually land in the place, but I'm forgiven. I'm going to go back to the place where Paul is. Shoot the messenger, not me. Ah, shoot me. Whatever. Right? Uh, shoot somebody. He's creating two categories. The unrighteous and the righteous. And he's saying, if your life is defined by, if you're living this way, and you know it's wrong, and you're unrepentant, he's saying, I have questions about your faith. I have questions if you actually understand what being in Christ means. I'm asking if you actually understand the gospel and what Jesus did and, and gave and sacrificed on your behalf. Because those who do change. Those who do respond and, and work their way this way, not perfectly, we'll fail, we'll fall short, but we change. And the distinction is living comfortably here, he says, I have questions that you are in Christ. Over here, pointed the right direction, right? Aiming at, having successes in, just not perfect, right? And I'm not saying in this particular area, this particular area you could be perfect in. But you're always going to fall short in sin, right? I'm not excusing that, I'm not saying it's okay. There was a a theologian, a German theologian, he lived 100 years ago, about 80 years ago, wrote a book that still is used constantly today called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he coined a phrase, and hold off on the slide for just a second, he coined a phrase called cheap grace. 
And it's typically defined as it cost Christ everything. It cost God his only son. Grace cost God his only son. Like it, it cost Jesus his suffering. And Jesus literally left heaven to become human. Sacrifice starts there, right? Lived in a human body, limited, hungry, lonely, poor. He, he sacrificed. He then went and took a penalty on his body, right? Took the punishment for us. He died on a cross. Like the guy who gave life to humanity, the God who did that died on a cross, right? Like the sacrifice that it cost to get you and I grace, forgiveness, is not cheap. But when we say, oh, I'm forgiven, we treat it cheaply because it was given freely to us. Here's a quote from Bonhoeffer, if you'd put that up now, please. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, all out last week. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And so we go back, do you really understand grace? Because if you're still living over here, there's just questions that need to be asked for your good. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up, raise up us up by his power. Meaning God raised Jesus from the dead and will also raise up our physical bodies to life again too. That's assuming we die before the return of Jesus, right? So assuming that our bodies will be raised. Either way, our bodies will be made sinless and new. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Remember what I said? Paul is going to use the word bodies and members over and over and all the way in his run up to chapter 12 where he talks about belonging, being members of a body, a local church. So he's saying this and there's a dual meaning here. And he's, he's kind of front loading some of his argument as he leans into it later. So bodies and members, a member of a church body is one who is covenantly united together both with Christ and one another, right? For the mutual discipleship and care of one another, right? And so members in this passage, he's saying your physical bodies, not just your spiritual lives, are members of Christ. See, a lot of times we think about our faith being or our spiritual lives being united with Christ, but then we treat our physical lives of it somehow separate. That also is a very unique 2,000 years ago platonic or, or philosophy of a separation between the spiritual and the physical, we do some of the same things without some of the same beliefs today, if that makes sense. Let's restart at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? This is not limited to vocational women in that trade. It's kind of name calling here, if you will. He's leaning into how bad this is and how, how not so bad they're treating it. Are you with me? How lightly they're taking it and how strongly they ought to be. And so he's, he's using this language in that verse 9, 10, 11, where he names those specific sins. There's a line in there uh, that's kind of translated into one word today. Uh, and I'm glad because the literal translation of that is very graphic. This one, very similar, very graphic. And what we're hearing is we treat this 
uh, it's, it's just normal, it happens at this, and we treat it cheaply. And Paul is making the case of the cost, of the cost on us, the cost on the church, about the reality of conversion and who is actually in Christ. So a rephrase might be, do you not know that your sin, specifically this physical sexual sin, unites you with what you choose to be a part of, either church or sin? That's what he's saying. You're choosing what you're belonging to, if you will. Verse 16, starting in the second half. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That ought to be a line used in marriage. He's using it here to make the case. You either are belonging to sin or you're belonging to Christ. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If you're a Christian... Transformation is the evidence. Again, like I said earlier, transformation doesn't earn God's love. God's love and God's favor, God's grace is not merited. It's free. It's undeserved. You can't deserve it. There's nothing you could do to deserve it anyhow. But when it's given, the expectation is transformation. The expectation is change. The expectation is that you would live a life now that follows Jesus as the only priority, right? And that only priority will make you a better husband or wife or parent or son or daughter. It will make you a better member of a church. It will make you a better student. It will make you a better worker. It'll do all those things in its place. But Jesus alone sits at the top of the org chart. See, James 2 says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says faith without works is dead. Like if you say you have faith, and that's the point James is making. So you say you're a follower of Jesus. I'm going to show you what I truly believe by how I live. Right? If you say this, but don't live this way, I'm saying you're showing what you truly believe by how you live. Your actions follow belief. We say this all the time in the church. Right? We don't have behavioral problems, we have belief problems. When we change what we believe, we live to it. And again, I'm not saying perfectly, because it's, it takes change, it takes time. But you will follow what you truly believe. And that's what James is saying. Your behavior will follow your belief always. Verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. So the question has to be asked, if you are guilty in this particular area. What's the solution, right? He doesn't say like, hey, figure it out. Wander away in your own time. Hey, take your time. It's cool. We're not going anywhere. It's all good. Uses the word like run from, flee from. Like the word repent is an old military term that actually when you're losing in battle and going to die, the general up on the hill who sees that you're using, losing, yells repent. And your idea is you're going to turn 180 degrees and run for your life. That's the language Paul is using. Turn and run. Flee from this. Right? Why is it that the modern church treats this as if it doesn't matter? Why is it the church in Corinth treats it as if it doesn't matter? Today we've got a second issue in the church. That when we meet someone who comes to faith or maybe says they're already a follower of Jesus and they're living together, what do we typically tell them? you need to get married. That's such a wrong answer. How do we know that? 
First of all, let's get them to Jesus. But marriage doesn't fix sin. Repentance does. Change your sin. Then let's figure that out. Like if you remove this from the equation, you've still got a good relationship. Let's walk through this. If you both come to faith, if you're both living for Jesus, if we get to this point, then maybe. Here's why divorce rates in the church are so high. Because we try and superimpose this answer where repentance belongs. You with me? That's why there's a higher percentage rate of divorces in the church than there is in the secular world. And there's also the secular world isn't telling people to get married. But we're trying to fix sin without repentance. Repentance is the answer. He says, flee. So verse 18, he says, now this one, just so you know, verse 18 should be in quotations as well. There's some question about it. So the ESV left the quotations out. But I'm going to give it to you as the quote and separate it. Quote from the Corinthians, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. They're like saying, that's my issue. It's just personal. That's what the Corinthians are saying. That we hear today. Oh, it's between me and God, or that's just or this, whatever, right? Here's what Paul says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought for a price. So glorify God in your body. I want to read that to you again. I want, you, I want to remind you of something. The seven uses of the pronoun you or your, they're all plural. Listen. Do you not know your body, your plural body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, plural, whom you plural have from God. You are not your plural own. You all, plural, were bought with a price, so glorify God in your plural body. He's using a play on words right? So glorify God in your church. Yes, by glorifying God in your personal life, your physical body, right? They're all plurals. Because he's leaning into this idea of the collective, the plural, those people, all of us that belong to Christ and why that matters. So this book is going to challenge us in a bunch of ways, and it's just going to check our understandings of authority for real, like, okay, who has authority here? And so I want to ask you a question, and I'm just going to put this on the screen today, authority questions. Who do we give authority to collectively and individually? Is Jesus an authority over us in purity? Do we live in repentance or un, in unrighteousness? Because we love to say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but Savior means forgiver, Lord means leader. Do we actually allow Jesus to lead what he says we do? Or do we live in unrighteousness? And the second one is the church collectively and authority over us in unity. We have issues of unity and purity throughout our own purity and purity within the church. Our own unity with the church and our own impurity in sin. And it's not that you're, you're going to be without sin. It's are you okay with your sin? And that's the challenge he's giving them. And is the, the bigger challenge, is the church okay with your sin? And that's what last week was all about. So our application, instead of my normal categories, I'm going to give you something a little different today. For individual authority, do you struggle to give lordship to Jesus over all of your life? If so, today calls us to flee from sin. If Jesus is not Lord, he may not be Savior either. Collectively, collective authority. Do you struggle to give authority to the collective church? If so, you're maintaining individual authority instead of being a part of the body of Christ. One more reminder, just so it's clear. 
I don't mean me. I don't mean the elders. I mean the assembled body of those who formerly belonged to Christ and one another, the local church. We call that members, those who are formerly members of. If you're here today and, and you find yourself on this side and you find yourself like, I don't know that Jesus is Lord or Savior necessarily of my life. To begin with faith, it requires handing over authority of your life to Jesus. That's what it looks like. I'm not here to market heaven to you until you say this prayer, you go to heaven. I'm telling you, to, to have Jesus over your life means you're going to give up authority of your life to Jesus. Not just in some areas. Following Jesus requires ultimate submission. Kids and parents. Parents, rather than teaching your kids the rules, do this, don't do that. The question is, do you teach your kids why their actions, sin, affects not only themselves, but others in the world we live in? If you don't have a good answer for that, you missed last Wednesday night. And we sat in here and talked about that very issue of what is sin, and then spent 30 minutes in little small groups talking about it. Wednesday nights are critical for, for the new believer, for sure, learning, for parents and kids to help disciple your kids, right? A resource that we should all be memorizing the catechism questions each week, that we could be discipling one another. And for you that think you don't need it, that's great. Maybe we need you. Maybe you should be here helping us disciple the rest of the church. See, it's a, it's a Wednesday night service. Summer fun nights, family nights, that's all over. Our Wednesday night service is for everyone. It's summer is for everyone too, but we actually need one another. And that's what 1 Corinthians is teaching us. We actually need one another in order to give up authority both to the local church and to Jesus ultimately. We even give authority to the church because we're giving lordship to Jesus. So I'm going to give you a few minutes. What is your takeaway? What is something you heard today that you can share with someone around you that you want to apply to your life over the next week, two weeks, whatever? And so let's give you a couple minutes and I will be back.